This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I next want to introduce Dr. Mark Gold, who is, I don't, I don't want to say a world-renowned expert in food addic- addiction, but the, you know, really the pioneer in food addiction. Through, he is an expert in addiction research. He started off with models of trying to understand substances, tobacco, cocaine, other drugs, um, on the opioid system, withdrawal, development of treatments. Uh, and he has noticed the epidemic. He has tracked it, he, the, the food addiction epidemic. He has put it on the map. He has fostered young researchers who are now the pioneers in the field, like Nicole Avina and Ashley Gearhart. And he is... Um, flew in just to give this talk, and he's fly, flying out right afterward, and we're so grateful for that he came to bless our symposium, because it wouldn't be the same without him. Thank you so much for coming. <laughs> well, it's um, great to be here for many, many reasons. Um, early on in my career, I did a considerable amount of work in tobacco, and we did secondhand smoke work. We had animals self-administering secondhand smoke, for example. And UCSF was uh, pioneering in taking science and affecting health policy. And here, uh, in talking about food and sugar, we have many of the critical leaders here. I'll hope to get to my slideshow. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, I'm filibustering right now. Um, but but um, if I do that, you'll go through the work. Um, Rob and Alyssa, everybody um, were so kind to me, and I'm, I'm grateful for their friendship. And every time I see a paper from this group, um, I just feel good. It's hard to explain how you feel as a grandfather, but it's the same way that you feel as a mentor. And um, you think things are really going to be all right with the world. So I'm really glad for everything and that you guys have done for us and our field. So my, my um, talk is a fun talk. I haven't really done it, which is, you know, like, how did we get here? Which really is ask the question of um, how did an addiction researcher start thinking about sugar, food, and obesity? Like, how did this happen? And so I listed the key ingredients and I'll try to get through all of them. I'm not sure that I'm gonna make it, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to try. And so, again, I appreciate the willingness to play with me on the topic and to make it so much fun for me. So yes, I love french fries, but I also love pizza and frozen custard. Um, I went to Woodstock and also was a doctor in New York City at Saturday Night Live Times. I did, um, principal uh, investigator work in what the neurobiology of the opiate withdrawal syndrome was and how to reverse it. I did supposed pioneering work on dopamine and dopamine messenger systems in pleasure and in cocaine abstinence. I got the chance at the University of Florida to work with Bob Cade, who invented Gatorade. Um, I worked with Gene Redman, who had the green vervet monkeys of St. Kitts. I had the chance to do clinical trials in tobacco. And so when you looked at all these things, you would have to be totally uh, oblivious 
to your environment to not have said, gee, I think sugar is important, I think food is important, and could have drug-like qualities. So uh, my own work started in this area in 1970s. We showed, for example, in opiate withdrawal, people lost their appetite. When you treated their withdrawal, they um, uh, got hungry and they overate. Overeating is such a major part of post-withdrawal state that most rehabs have prophylactic hyperphagia programs. When Betty Ford started the, the center um, in California, they instituted prophylactic diet counseling and hyperphagia uh, prevention programs just because everyone who came into a rehab when their withdrawal went away started to eat and overeat. And we did a lot of other work that I had the chance to review on my videotape early on. We gave naltrexone to binge eaters, 84. Um, I can't even remember where the naltrexone came from. I think directly from Endo Labs. And we had a lot of thought pieces in this area. But to look at it, we'd say over time, we thought about food and whether food could have drug-like qualities. But we couldn't say there was such a thing as food addiction because addiction itself was defined by physical abstinence. So cocaine wasn't addicting until really our work and other work said we should redefine addiction. So uh, until, and now that give you a quick history, research diagnostic criteria Washington University, cocaine is not addicting. DSM-1, cocaine is not addicting. Two, cocaine is not addicting. Three, cocaine's not addicting. Comprehensive textbook of psychiatry till 1988. Now, you say, that's ridiculous. And believe me, being a physician researcher at the time was also quite ridiculous because people would go to, the, to treatment centers and the emergency room and say, I don't really understand it. I'm addicted to a non-addicting drug. You know, please help me. I'm addicted to a non... It's kind of like cannabis addicts today. So we, we, um, we did uh, full issues of psychiatric and addiction journals on the subject um, very early on and um, tried to even say, in this, on the basis of well-known adage, if it looks like a duck, acts like a duck, quacks like a duck, it must be a duck. And so we said binge eating and overeating was an addiction. Now the problem with that for me in psychiatry was oftentimes I would show up at scientific meetings and people would quack. You know, so, and it wasn't, it wasn't that, you know, but, but I, I took it with a grain of salt. So um, we started to think that, that um, pathological attachment was the key component of addictions. And if you think of it like that, like a bad lover, pathological attachment, um, you, you then could conceive of pizza, frozen custard, um, and uh, french fries. Now, uh, while I worked in this field a long time, and you could say really from the 1970s, but in earnest in the 80s, um, I continually failed. And so um, when Bart Hubble passed away and we put a volume together in his honor, I got a chance to review my failure in the field. And I recommend this to anyone, but it was basically a statement of all the failed research projects that I had done in overeating and obesity. And um, the, 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 the take-home message was I focused on appetite. 
And if you focus on suppression of appetite, you would have my 30-year career as continually failing. But if you focused on reinforcement, modifying sugar or foods access to reinforcement sites, if you thought of it in the same way that we think about alcohol treatment, you could win and be successful and help people. And that's kind of where we started to get our act together in the 2000s. And so I kind of evolved um, and um, said, gee, we do, there are lessons from addiction. And one lesson was we could invent new treatments. Another lesson based on addiction models. Another lesson might be that the, the heaviest people in pre-bariatric surgery had the least substance misuse. And maybe we could think of drugs and food competing in the brain for similar reinforcement sites. So how did I start? I love French fries. Now, th this is relevant to your question, like when does it, it all happen in the brain? You know, you just have to show me a French fry in PET imaging. You stick me in Nora's PET imaging system and show me a French fry, and I'm like, I'm ready. I mean, I, I, uh, and in fact, she did that for me. So uh, it's, it's the first answer to uh, my career is I, I, have, I understand attraction, pathological attachment to food because of my relationship to french fries. I can even tell you how great I felt when McDonald's came up with a new package for french fries and I could fit my whole hand into it. You know, because it used to, you could only take one out at a time. You kind of, if you're old enough to remember, they, it was really difficult. But we've actually imaged this, and we feel very good about it. Now, uh, other times, I told you this was going to be light. Other times people say, like, did you ever think about this when you were at Wash U? So I was at Wash U and worked with John Finer and did some decent work there. Of course I did. I went to Wash U because of Ted Drews on Roots. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, frozen custard, that's, that's, that's the Vatican for, uh, for frozen custard addicts. I love that. And then why did I go to like Yale over Harvard? It's a, it's a, a great question. And really, it was because they invented pizza in, at, in New Haven. New Haven is the home of pizza, and Pepe's is the inventor of the American pizza. And so honestly, you could like track my whole academic career. Forget the thousand peer-reviewed papers, forget that, and just say, he's just an itinerant food addict. Um, going, so so, um, so <laughs> you could see like we could use animal models of drug self-administration to explain almost anything. And my anticipation would be great. I actually think I get pyloerection when I see a McDonald's French fry. Um, McDonald's French fry. So, you know, the, like, think about like, how fantastic conditioning must be and the dopamine system that I'm in Florida and I could be driving 75 miles an hour down the highway and see a golden arches and get hungry. I could pull over. I mean, it, it's a, anyway, okay, so, so I understand this. So next in my, like, how did I evolve into this field? I went to Woodstock. Um, now, I, David's, I've been here many times to David Smith's Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic. I've spoken at his anniversaries. I even spoke at an anniversary with Robin Williams. Um, and so uh, David Smith and I were both at Woodstock One, um, but 
Um, I remember it. Uh, so it, it's my generation, and, and um, it is a very interesting time. But if you were there, you might recall that by the second day, no food vans or food carts could come because it was all mud. And the acts were being flown in by helicopter. But it was only after Woodstock that it dawned on me that we had no food. That stuck with me. Um, and that was the before and after food. Uh, I mean, no, I mean it. You saw a lot of uh, people and you'd say like, no one said like, where's the food? So there's just something about drugs and food that um, interact within the same reinforcement systems. And there's something about rock and roll. So rock and roll and drugs might go together. And you know, so we tried this in animals at one time. We took cocaine self-administering animals and gave them Ruth Chris steak. It reduces cocaine self-administration. It's not an antidote. But drugs and food interact in a way that's useful. So anyway, I like um, now I move on to Yale and I'm I'm studying the neurobiology of withdrawal. And so to do this, this is why they, they joke about me being the father of the field because it's like almost a hundred percent mind experiments at this point. I mean, it's but it's a lot of fun. My cocaine dopamine hypothesis was a hundred percent mind experiment until Nora did the PET imaging and she was a psych resident when I was an attending at NYU. So it's just a great kind of how the world works through your mentees and friends and associations that makes academics so wonderful. So anyway, I, I, uh, I, I'm faced with the problem of uh, what do you do in addiction treatment if somebody wants off of methadone? And so that was a problem that I got interested in uh, uh, really at an early age in 75, 1975. It's really, God knows you could even find these articles. But um, we had a primate lab at, the, at 333 Cedar on the roof, and um, Gene Redmond's lab, and we, um, he also had the St. Kitts uh, green vervet monkey colony. And this work led to the invention of clonidine, the first non-addicting treatment, which I was the patent holder. Uh, and first author in the Lancet paper, and was considered the first medically assisted treatment for addiction. Now, what we then did was say, okay, if you detoxify somebody, what could you do? And we put them on long-acting Narcan naloxone. Naltrexone, at the time that it was an orphan drug, made for us as a smelly oral liquid by Endo Labs. It was so vile that the patients had to hold their nose and shoot it and so they wondered why adherence was so bad. I mean, you know, think about it. Uh, and we showed that repeated injections of naloxone could rapidly eliminate the withdrawal, and it became what was called rapid detox. We did all that before 1978. Um, and um, we, we also found that most of the patients relapsed. So we did get to prove that detox wasn't a treatment. I think that's probably missing in most of this work. Um, but it, the only patient population where we had success were in mandated treatment. And so in se really late 70s, early 80s, we did a, a reasonable 
trial of physician addicts, detoxified them, put them on naltrexone. They were mandated by the Board of Medicine to take it, and they had unbelievably high success rates. So this was me. Um, I didn't give him the headline, Yale Doctor Discovers Heroin Treatment. We, um, what we did discover was the neurobiology of opiate withdrawal and relation to noradrenergic systems, but we didn't really um, do more. So naltrexone is a great drug. You're using it here in trials. We used it, um, of course, because it was long-acting. It's oral. It's safe. Um, it's just fantastic. I put it in. I wrote a popular book called Wonder Drugs, which eight people bought. Uh, it's, it's really helpful to have a big family. Yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, and it is just a wonder drug. Think about it. You could detox people with clonidine. You could put them on naltrexone, and they're permanent. As long as they take it, they're immune to opiates. You have a two-drug treatment protocol that's, that's a cure. However, why would you take it? Your brain is telling you you're fine, and you're cured, and you stop, and then you relapse. So um, uh, that's kind of the early days. It's a perfect drug. Um, but we noticed a number of things. Now, th again, this is a, a myth of mine, but it's a good myth. We thought the patients taking naltrexone had changes in their appetite. So they're detox, so they have hyperphagia. We put them on naltrexone, and they just said that things didn't taste or feel the same. Now, what we missed, what Chuck O'Brien didn't miss, was that they drank less alcohol. But we were focused on sugar fat changes, and we did. Now, the biggest lessons I had, and really, you can invent new treatments, is great, and help people, is great. Clonidine still used in neonatal abstinence syndrome in emergency rooms. It's still used as an analgesic potentiator. It's still used for detox. But my greatest lessons was in the, sum, the winter of 1978. So these are a combination of pictures that people have sent me and my own pictures um, and the internet. But, so in 78, we had the snowstorm of the century. I lived in Guilford, Connecticut. I was with Herb Kleber running the MAT program, methadone program at Yale, which had about 250 clients. And we, it was a storefront program because in 78, um, we were not allowed to admit an alcoholic or an addict to Yale New Haven Hospital. Um, they were considered, um, un, you couldn't admit them, you could detox them or treat them in an emergency and then I would take them to a church basement or over to a storefront clinic. It was not a medical disease, it was whatever they thought at the time and you know, they thought they'd be bad roommates for the people who have hypertension. I don't know. So um, this is what it looked like in Connecticut. Have you ever been in a Connecticut Turnpike? Normally the roads don't look like this. And they had no snow removal at that time. They had to fly in snow removal into Hartford. Um, and Ashley, you know, you'd remember, like, like we had, we, you know, they had 10-foot drifts. That's the Turnpike. It's a total disaster. And they had 50 mile an hour wind. It took three days to clear the road. So the blizzard of 78 was really important for me because I called my boss, Herb Kleber, and I said, 
what are we going to do? We have 250 people that expect to get methadone tomorrow, and I am stuck here. He said, no problem. Now, he lives in New Haven, and I live in Guilford. He said, no problem. We'll send the state troopers to pick you up. So they sent the state troopers. They picked me up in a, some kind of all-terrain vehicle of the day, and they bring me to a clinic with no heat and the nurse, and we're ready for the next day. We stayed there for three days to give methadone to the clients. The first day, nobody came. I'm freezing and shivering. And, you know, I, and so I call Kleber. We don't have cell phones or I'd be whining all the time. And I, I call him and I say, like, he said, you're the one that wants a big career in addiction research. Find out what it means. What does it mean that all of these people who should be collapsing and should have intense withdrawal are not coming? What are they doing? Turns out, rituals. So they would take a spoon, bend it, put a sugar uh, cube in it, and pretend like they were going to inject themselves. The withdrawal went away. Then it would come back. They'd take the spoon, sugar cube, melt it, pretend they were going to inject themselves. The withdrawal would go away. Some of them had very elaborate rituals, but almost everybody had some ritual. Um, and that led me to then ask everybody about withdrawal. And it turned out among addicts, when um, heroin wasn't available, they did do a lot of sugar. Um, they had nausea and vomiting. They used condition cues and mind games. And they'd even draw it up in a syringe, skin pop it. It was just amazing. So um, I kind of got respect for um, sugar. The second thing that they did was got drunk. So they would just drink to excess. Um, as these were the drinks of the day. A lot of vodka. And, and you, you think about revolutionary um, and Civil War anesthesia, and you're back to alcohol. I mean, bite a bullet, give them a, get them drunk. And so they did a lot of alcohol, sugar and a lot of alcohol. And so that led me to think about gene Redmond's Green Vervet Monkeys, which hopefully, you have the Green Vervet Monkeys of St. Kitts, and they um, hunt for and search out fermented sugar cane. And they then like that and become accustomed to that, and net, 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 find themselves raiding local tourist traps for Coca-Cola, Fanta, and alcoholic beverages. And some prefer alcoholic beverages, and some prefer um, soda. So how did I get to, to thinking about that? Well, of course, um, I was at UF, and Bob Cade invented Gatorade. The original Gatorade formula that they used on the Gators, the team objected to its taste. It still, they thought, was very effective in electrolyte replacement. Cade did these crazy experiments. He's deceased. I got to give him uh, his uh, uh, honorary uh, alumnus award and, uh, before he died. And they have a museum of, of innovation named after him. And he and his family are wonderful people. But he was kind of amazing. He would take medical students and make us run naked up and down the stadium steps. I don't think you could do that today. 
but and then then he would swab your body because he was trying to he was a nephrologist he was trying to figure out input output what you know what would be an electrolyte solution and in his own mind his greatest accomplishment was the use of Gatorade in um, diarrhea syndromes in Africa and life-saving but his original formula kind of like the coca-cola original formula which had cocaine in it and was replaced with caffeine the Cade original formula um, just didn't work and so what he did was infuse it with sugar and by doing that he invented Gatorade which um, of course everyone likes so sugar liking and alcohol can be seen in animal work in the green vervet monkeys of St. Kitts we can give them injections of naltrexone and reduce their alcohol drinking in the wild. So that's pretty interesting. So other things that I know from my field is, um, you know, if you know, ever know anybody that's in recovery, they always say, you know, if you want to avoid a relapse, remember the acronym HALT. And the reason is that they tell people never get to H, hungry. Never get to A, angry. Never get to L, lonely. Never get to T, tired. But it all starts with hunger because it's the same word that addicts use. Drug hunger, hungry. Craving, craving. Now, in AA meetings, the good AA meetings give you cake and cookies. Like, we used to choose AA meetings to take patients to that were all about cake and cookies. And um, just this is just two days ago, Mark Potenza, Nora, and I in Montreal at the International Addiction Conference saying the exact same thing. That dopamine is important in anticipation. It's important in the chain link of learning. Um, it's key in obesity because as you eat more and more or as you drug more and more, your D2 receptors downregulate and it just is causing you to break even. But you are dysphoric. And then the peripheral signaling where a lot of work has been done here really interfaces with the brain mechanisms rather than one or the other. Next, I worked a lot in tobacco, as I said. Well, one thing about tobacco is they understand selling their drug, and so they didn't call it Virginia Slims for nothing. The whole ads, and UCSF has a file of these ads from the Chipolone and other tobacco cases. They're all about weight loss. Well, smoking cessation is all about weight gain and that gain is like six months to a year it's not six minutes and our group has shown that it doesn't matter what the drug is all drug withdrawals associated with hyperphagia and even most recently in our smoke cannabis model so you gain weight it, and there's many reasons for it but we won't go into them so now uh, uh, you could stop smoking but you will gain weight and in a way, we should reconsider what withdrawal is to accommodate the longer effects, which maybe fit in your area and more hypothalamic effects. In addiction, almost every drug addict has disordered sleep, disordered appetite, post-addiction treatment for six to 12 months. Um, cocaine, dopamine, and reinforcement. So my most cited article is the dopamine hypothesis article that we did in 85, which was a mind experiment where if you read the commentaries, people who wrote the Goodman and Gilman chapter and all the pharmacology chapters said that it was the exact opposite. Cocaine, by blocking dopamine reuptake, 
cause dopamine increases. And we said, no, 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 that's only one dose. How about repeated doses? It would be a dopamine deficiency. And so we postulated a dopamine deficiency state, which Nora um, has on the website right now. So like 1984 and 85 till here we are, In 2016. In this study, researchers demonstrated the rapid passage of cocaine through the brain and showed that the intensity of the volunteer's cocaine high parallels the trajectory of cocaine levels in the brain. Two minutes after the cocaine injection, the volunteers report being high as the drug begins to flood the brain. The volunteers' rating of their high and the amount of drug in the brain are at similar levels relative to what their respective peak levels will be. Four minutes after the cocaine injection, the volunteers' rating of their high peaks simultaneously with the amount of drug in the brain. The drug is most concentrated in the striatum, the region of the brain that produces feelings of reward. The volunteers' perceived high, the amount of drug in the brain, and the drug concentration in the striatum remain near peak levels 10 minutes after the cocaine injection. At 20 minutes post-injection, the volunteers' high and the overall amount of cocaine in the brain have subsided to roughly half of their peak levels. The drug remains most concentrated in the striatum. The volunteers' high has almost entirely subsided 30 minutes after the injection. A moderate amount of the drug remains in the striatum, with little remaining in other parts of the brain. 40 minutes after the cocaine injection, the volunteers no longer feel high and the drug is undetectable in most parts of the brain. Altogether, the study demonstrates that the cocaine high parallels the trajectory of cocaine levels in the brain, the striatum as the reward center, and dopamine, its primary neurotransmitter, appear to be particularly instrumental in producing the high. This is really big news in 84 and 85, and less so now, but I do think you kind of get the feeling that it's not over. And what isn't over is the dopamine disruption caused by drugs. Now, whether that will apply to food, as we talked about, all right, um, so is a, is a different story. So um, there is a whole like post-addiction anhedonia, depression, and suicidality that we have to look at. In PET imaging, the longest post-cocaine PET images done at Brookhaven um, did not show recovery. It's so just a really interesting question about the whole vulnerability of the dopamine system and what is, what is uh, we do five-year outcomes in physician addicts, but what would be the six-month, one-year outcome? So uh, cocaine is a, a used for appetite suppression and as a drug, used at high altitudes mixed with citrus and ash. And I got the chance to work with Bob Bick who translated Freud's cocaine papers. Um, there's a jokes about, about cocaine, you know, with Saturday Night Live, they used to buy prescription coke. This sold at Sotheby's, Freud's prescription for cocaine, because Freud prescribed cocaine for morphine addicts. And so he became known at Saturday Night Live as the, the father of the speedball. But um, aside from that, you can look at Saturday Night Live pictures and tell when they're on or off drugs, in my opinion. Um, so uh, we had 
medical doctors, again, of course, cocaine was a medicine and was sold as a tooth remedy and in wine. And Bob Bick helped me understand that smoking is injection without a needle and that cocaine um, was a, a used by supermodels for uh, appetite suppression and weight control. And um, I'd never really thought about that. So drugs on, food off, and then in cocaine uh, abstinence treatment, the hyperphagia is extreme. So they just eat like wild. We had the first report in the world and in Lancet um, showing crack, and it's the same thing for freebase or crack or in sniff cocaine, you name it. Um, but I think the interaction with weight loss is really important. Um, conditioning is also important for cocaine, and we, we not only uh, dogs can be trained to smell cocaine, but there are some aroma of cocaine experiments in humans. And in the 80s, there was even a perfume for people who go to clubs in New York City um, where you could sprinkle aroma of cocaine on yourself and make yourself more interesting or attractive. So, um, so much for that. But nevertheless, there is an on, drugs on, food off, drugs off, food on, and you can really see it. So um, our work um, was uh, replicated this thought project by Nora's work with Jean Jack Wang. And it was all about D2 receptors targeting the brain. And Nora then built the first PET imaging system to accommodate morbidly obese people and showed virtually the same thing as alcohol, which you might expect given the green vervet monkeys. The greater, uh, the more eating disordered um, and more obese, the more abnormal the response. So I went on from there to Bart Hubble. Now, Bart and I both lived in New Jersey. Bart was a, a very gregarious guy. He invited me to uh, continue an academic career with him, which I did, and um, as some of you know, um, he called me from Sloan Kettering when he got his cancer diagnosis, um, asked me to support his lab with my endowment, and um, asked me to um, uh, help him through the end, or end parts of his life. Um, and um, I committed myself to placing all of his students and postdocs. I ran the lab really for two years after his death. Um, Bart um, and his work and, and some of those students are doing incredible work today. Um, the university system in Florida allowed me to do that, the president, um, and it was just uh, fortunate for everybody. But he did the pioneering work, which he shared with me on sugar being self-administered by lab animals, binge use, loss of control, and naloxone precipitated withdrawal. That's Bart. And so you could think about sugar then. Think about sugar. If tobacco is the pro-molecules for nicotine dependence, then maybe soft drink is for sugar. Well, it's self-administered by lab animals. They binge, dopamine's relief. You have naloxone precipitated withdrawal. You could do the same thing with fructose corn syrup, which Bart showed quite nicely, and then talk about sugar addiction. This is kind of really old BART work. If you eat, you like it, you crave it, your sugar goes up, it goes down, you eat more, and so I'm back to addiction model. Gee, if cocaine's addicting, and you don't have to have a profound withdrawal, you just have to have pathological attachment, continued compulsive use, 
loss of control, uh, diseases and consequences, surely um, sugar should work. And uh, that was Bart's model, was binging, withdrawal, cross-sensitization, craving, locomotion, and so forth. Now, even though I've shown you all these publications, and we published since 80s, I had no citations. Now, Ashley um, one time showed a graph of this, which luckily she doesn't have anymore. But I mean, I went, it was like my book, Wonder Drugs. No one other than people in my group ever referenced anything. So I was just writing articles and they were just going somewhere. Um, and nobody, so I had no citations. And then Ashley popped up as a student at Yale and um, she told Kelly, this is really an interesting role that students can have on mentors. She told Kelly that she was really fascinated and interested in this work and he should invite me to Yale. She's the prime mover here. Um, so then I got the chance to work my magic with Kelly. Like, isn't this interesting? You see, this is really the science. All these people are in little isolated areas. And so as a result of that, um, Ashley helped Kelly and I organize what's called the Yale Historic Conference on Food and Addiction, which brought together all these experts. You have to keep in mind that I think Ashley, Kelly, and I had to call them all. They didn't know each other. The nephrologists and the hepatologists and the diabetologists, they didn't know each other. And we then had Nora do the keynote, and right after that, um, NIH became interested in doing some funding. So this was a really important moment, and I'm really happy about it. We took the authors, the presenters, and put them in a book, which is the, the Oxford University Comprehensive Textbook, which we use to put our grandchildren to sleep. So it's like Abby Hoffman once said, don't buy this book. I mean, but so the Red Center did a lot of interesting work. Ashley's done great work um, and now has her own center you'll hear about. Nicole Levina has done great work and that's her TED talk. And we're back to this, is soda the new tobacco? Well, my friend in the front row um, has influenced this a great deal. So there's all kinds of anti-sugar, soft drink sugar vehicle work. You can even drink soda to death. And Nicole has done that, there's sugar in there. And think about it, sugar could be as addicting as a drug. So that's even beyond sugar and foods have drug-like qualities, they could be as addicting. Uh, and that supports this common neurobiology of addiction for food, gambling, sex, internet, and uh, the, the typical drugs of abuse that we talk about that are self-administered by lab animals and humans, have continued compulsive use, loss of control, and are considered behavioral addictions, which is now a, a big topic um, everywhere and being studied. Our group has studied um, has is, uh, studied a variety of them, and um, there's even a summary available from Columbia University's catheter uh, updating us on this. So I'm going to leave you with a couple of things. 
where does food addiction fit? What does it mean to be Yale food addiction positive and what will that predict about both neurobiology and, and treatment? Sure, food might be addicting. Sure, sugar is self-administered and clearly could be addicting, but independent of all of that, could sugar itself be toxic? And um, so one of my relatives um, is a graduate and said, you must know this guy. <laughs> to which I, I said, yes, I know him, but I don't think sugar is more addicting than cocaine, but I do think sugar is addicting. So thank you very much for inviting me. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.